Hello. Welcome to CNN. I'm your host, Brooke Hines. It is Sunday, May 30th, Memorial Day weekend. And tonight, I'm so excited. We get to find out who killed Aaron McMenamin on Mayor of Easttown. My money is on the best friend, Lori Ross. I have reasons for this. We'll see. Tonight on the show, I'm playing DJ because we have an embarrassment of riches to share with you. So I'm just going to get out of the way and let it all rip, okay? So Rick Spizak has been super busy. He's got uh, two things to share tonight. First up, Dominic Windrum. uh, uh wrote an amazing piece on Jeremy Corbyn. So we are sharing that. That'll be up first. Then Rick has a chat with our friend uh, and favorite philosophy professor, Wendy Lynn Lee. Uh, and they're talking about January 6th and beyond. So, you know, what is that about? Where are we going from that? Are we uh, going to still just be there? Are we going to do anything about it? What are we going to do? So they're going to talk about that. And then, then Janine Moloff has an epic justice report tonight. Uh, She is walking us through a stunning fact about the filibuster. And I'm going to give you a little bit of a little bit of a spoiler, you know, just to just kind of get you on the hook. Uh, Just like with the parliamentarian, the vice president, Kamala Harris, in this instance, has the power to stop the procedural filibuster. You heard it here. You heard it here first, I guess, or or at all. It's something that hasn't been talked about. It's uh, But since 1957, a succession of vice presidents have had the ability to end the procedural filibuster and declare it unconstitutional. That power is seated with the vice president. So that's really interesting. All of the stuff about mansion and cinema and, oh, my God, we can't do anything because, you know, we don't we don't have enough good Democrats. So it's, it's not enough to have a majority. And if you remember back to the Obama administration, it wasn't enough to have a super majority. You had to have like, you know, just all of the 60 votes or else it doesn't count. And, it, you know, and plus the House and you got to own it all now. There is a lot of power that presidents wield, and there's a lot of power that vice presidents are uh, have available to them when it comes to the Senate. And, uh, yeah, you know, the vice president could just step right up and say, hey, no more of this uh, tabling votes, um, you know, with the, with the procedural filibuster. Now, I'm going to leave you hanging with this, though. You are not going to believe who we have to thank for this. You're just not going to believe it. Uh, it's it's stunning. All of it uh, is uh, it just kind of freaks me out. Freaks me out that this is where we're at right now <clears throat> with all of this. I've got some stuff to share with you guys. Probably coming up later this week, I'll do an an extra uh, PNN. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that's that's happening on the COVID front. There's a lot of stuff that's happening in uh, some of these other stories that we've been following uh, over the course of time. But for tonight, Brooke's going to get right out of the way 
and right in to the material. So first up, Dominic Windrum, and we'll be right back with that. Ladies and gentlemen, I have the great good fortune to bring you today Mr. Dominic Windrum, poet, author, uh, philosopher, and man of great political depth and acumen. Dominic has a story he needs to tell us what we need to know about what's been going on in the UK with Jeremy Corbyn, a figure much like Uh, our Senator Bernie Sanders, in that he's a progressive through and through, has always been fighting the good fight. Talk to us about what's been going on with Jeremy Corbyn. Dominic, go ahead. Well, what happened, yeah, last year I did a short course at Teesside University, it's a local university, and I, yeah, looked at um, sociology, understanding everyday life, and I we had, we had to do an article um, on media analysis, so we looked, I looked at a newspaper article that was um, claiming that Jeremy Corbyn was anti-Semitic. Um, and this has been a feature of the press for a long time now. They've, they've called him a terrorist supporter, communist, hard left, uh, anti-Semite, obviously. Uh, and I don't think these unfounded labels, particularly the last one, they don't seem to reflect the man and his values. He's notably taken a firm stance against all forms of racism throughout his life. And why do you think this is? Why is he getting so uh, mis misframed, or why is there all of these attacks? Yeah. Well, I think it's um, such an egregious, multifaceted character has been created in order to present to progressive policies from being realized, implemented. I mean, the real problem with the uh, anti-Semitic caricature is that he takes a stance against, you know, he's highly critical of Israeli crimes and human rights violations. And his disposition seems to be the defamatory charges. Well, uh, you know, it seems that anyone who attempts any criticism of Israeli policies, of Israeli treatment of the Palestinians, uh, who who finds fault with some of the uh, past laws, uh, the building of walls, the confiscation of property. seems that anyone who has any problems with that gets some pretty rough treatment in the press. Yeah, definitely. I think a big thing, though, is with the constantly deconstructing mainstream media. You know, I know in America that APAC, for example, the American-Israeli Public Affairs or Propaganda Affairs, maybe, has a stranglehold on U.S. Congress with its bipartisan support. It doesn't matter if it's Republican or Democrat. You still get that support. Um, and it's, it's sort of... The Israeli lobby is quite strong over here now as well. And they're very well-oiled propaganda machine, unfortunately. And I don't know where the journalism is in our country. I mean, the article I looked at was from The Guardian, which is ostensibly left-leading, but, I mean, liberal, conservative. Most of the press over here is very the right. Um, and I wouldn't call, you know, some of these people call themselves journalists. It devalues the term journalist. Most of them are hacks, really. Yeah. 
I'm losing you right now, buddy. I don't have any audio. Yeah. Yeah. We got the audio back. Yeah. Did you hear yeah. that? <laughs> yeah. uh, no, actually, I didn't hear the last comment you made. It might be a better idea if you turned off your video uh, so that uh, we can get a little better connection. Yeah, I think so, yeah. I'm sorry yeah, to lose sorry. your charming, smiling face, sir. That's okay. Yeah, it's off. Great. That should be better, yeah. Okay, go ahead. So which bit did you not hear? Yeah, um, yeah I was just saying that it, yeah. We were talking about the press. I was just saying that a lot of the, the journalists, yeah, they're, they're, they're not really journalists. It devalues the term journalism. Most of them are mere hacks in this country. I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of Meghan Markle, but I think she had very rough treatment by the press over here. I mean, I, I know that. There's this, there's this sort of sly kind of racism that comes in, all sorts of things. It's 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 really bad. And I couldn't do this interview on the BBC because that's our national state broadcaster. And they just, they, they never analyse anything seriously like like these smears. Um, basically, it's state propaganda, the BBC, and I was going to say about it, um, we're forced to pay a licence fee at the pain or point of imprisonment to watch this, this the, the BBC. And uh, even even Joseph Stalin didn't come up with that one. Well, you know, we, we have heard time and time again that the intelligence agencies have invested a good money in hiring journalists to pose as journalists, but instead to draft propaganda. Um, do you feel that this was in large part made to discredit Mr. Corbyn's policies as well as Mr. Corbyn himself? I think so, yeah. I think the whole of the um, the establishment in this country is very, very powerful, the establishment. And, um, yeah, I think there was a determined effort by... The, I mean, it's very... Corbyn joked. He said that he didn't need the press. It, it, now it's social media. A lot of the young ones who followed Corbyn followed social media. But I think he was a bit naive because the press... I mean, they, they've gone online, the press. They have it still very powerful. I mean, one of the trashy tabloid papers, The Sun, which is right, right, very right wing. Every prime minister that's been elected in this country has uh, been supported over the last 40, uh, 40 50 years has been um, supported by this this tabloid, this The Sun. <laughs> Rupert Murdoch owned, by the way. So yeah, it's very difficult to get a voice out there, you know. So that's why I was really pleased to be given this opportunity. Well, you know, they've, they've gone a long way uh, to demonize anyone who obtains power and is a progressive in any way. We've seen the same kind of attacks on Bernie. He, a Jewish man himself, has been called yes, anti-Semitic. Yeah. So what the term for like, people like Noam Chomsky, Norman Finkelstein, all Jewish. Uh, Ilan Pape is a historian, Israeli historian here at Exeter University in England. They're all called self-hating Jews, which is which is unbelievable, really. How can you be? How can you know, hate themselves? <laughs> these are these are these are highly intelligent people, you know. I've heard the point made time and time again that there's more criticism of the Jewish government in the Jewish press in Israel than there is. Uh, seen in the in the supposedly free free West. 
Is that correct? Yeah, I think so. Um, Gideon Levy is a very good writer. Yeah, very good journalist. So and he attacks his own government. Yeah, I mean it's it, it's it's extraordinary, really. But the, the, this propaganda is very very powerful. It has a very powerful powerful effect on people and the way they think. Now, um, Mr. Corbyn is out of power now, or yes. Yeah, he lo- he lost the general election in late 2019 and was replaced by one uh, Sir Keir Starmer, <laughs> uh, who is basically a Tony Blair clone, really. Um, he's very unpopular among the young. And he's not made any um, gain on Boris Johnson, despite all Boris Johnson's failings. This so-called progressive has made, made no impact. Uh, funnily enough, Hartlepool, where I live, there's a major, major election coming up because the, the MPs resigned. Um, it was a, it was a Corbyn, Corbyn supporter. He's resigned over some con- controversy. Anyway, um, they're all up here at the moment trying to make sure that it, Labour's held a seat in Hartlepool for over ooh, 50, 60 years. Oh, my. Now, what they're claiming, they're thinking that it's going to be an upset and the Conservatives are going to get in. Now, North East was traditionally Labour. Scotland was traditionally Labour. It's been decimated up here now. So people have gone towards the Conservatives because of the Brexit policy. A lot of people in Hartlepool wanted England, the England, UK to come out of the European Union. So that's going on, That that, that um, those issues. So I, I actually think they will get beat. And it's, they're going to have to have a long... A lot of soul searching in that party before it's uh, before they can capture the people's trust again. Obviously, the Iraq War was Labour as well under Tony Blair. Um, so the, the, they haven't really dealt with any of these issues. So that's why Boris, Boris has got a free ride. <laughs> now, is is Mr. Corbyn retired from politics, or is he a kind of senior <clears throat> statesman uh, still advising? What's I his current see. status? You don't see much of him now. They're not interested in him all of a sudden. <laughs> um, he's um, a backbench, backbench MP, and he, um, he's still, I think he's still um, MP for a place called Islington in London. And he's, he's a very popular um, MP there. I think he's been in the position for over 40 years. Wow. But you do, as I say, he's, because he's out of the, the spotlight, you don't see much of him. But he, um, he had a terrible time with the, the press. Uh, but I think about 84% of the things said about him were actually lies, you know? Yeah. And then you get a seasoned liar like Boris Johnson who seems to get away with everything. You know? it, it's incredible, you know? So um, I understand that things are improving with uh, uh, COVID now? Yes, things are things are improving with COVID. Um I'm going to get my second uh, injection uh, in, in a few weeks' time, um, and um, schools are, schools are back. But um, like for my job as a personal tutor, I can't see me visiting houses until September. I'm still teaching online. I just uh-huh. want to make sure everything's okay first. Sure, sure. We're certainly hearing terrible news out of India, aren't we? Yeah, it's terrible. Yes, yeah. Uh, one of my news sources said something like uh, a thousand a day dying. 
thousand a day, that's terrible, isn't it? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's such a it's such a deeply divided society, India. You know, with the the caste system and then the sort of um, crude capitalism that goes on there. Yeah, it's it's awful. Well, my friend, any final thoughts uh, on the situation of labor? Who's who's the emerging labor leader now with Mr. Corbyn sidelined? Well, as I said, they've got Keir, Keir Starmer is the um, leader at the moment, and he's been a leader for the last oh, 18 months. But he's, as I say, he's not he's not very popular at all because he's seen as a Tony Blair clone. So they might go to somebody else, uh, a younger, a younger um, hopeful. But it, I think the Labour Party's on its knees, basically. I don't I don't see much future for it. I certainly won't be voting for it again in the near future. Uh, that's a shame. Well, the, 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 if it supported Corbyn, people in his own party were backstabbing him. So, you know, and he did, he was very he got he got six hundred, I think he got the um, Labour membership up to six hundred thousand. Wow! It was the biggest socialist um, party in in Europe. So he must have been doing something right. But as I say, he can't, his progressive policies were not allowed to be. Um, to be uh, manifested, if you like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In any way, shape, or form. So. Well, thank you so much for giving us some insight into uh, the situation with Mr. Corbin. Uh, every speech I've heard of his was totally on the mark. Really, a, a very positive person, and uh, I have heard him do some criticism of Israel policies. You know, it's amazing to me that some people can't understand that you can disagree with a policy without having, you know, some kind of visceral reaction to the person or the to the the community. But yeah. uh, clearly, that case had been made in in much of the the uh, programming press. So, thank you so much for your insight. Any final thoughts, sir? Um. I'd just like to say, actually, with regard to media, I really like um, what you do in America with um, public broadcasting radio. I've been a fan for a long time because I used to listen to sort of cult um, artists and musicians. There's a radio station in um, San Francisco. I can't quite remember it, but I used to listen to that when I was younger. And I think you do a great service um, getting alternative voices out there. There's nothing equivalent to that in here in the UK. Not too bad. Yeah, it's a shame, but I'm very pleased to be on American Radio as always. <laughs> Our pleasure to have you, sir. It's always a pleasure to have Mr. Dominic Windrum, who brings us a very intelligent perspective from the UK shores. Thanks again, Dominic. You have a good Thank day. Thank you, Rick. Bye-bye. See you now. Okay. Bye bye. And we've got Wendy Lynn Lee coming up right now, talking to Rick Spizak. Good morning, Professor Wendy. How are you? Uh, I I am okay. How are you? I'm good. I'm, I have been dying to talk to you, uh, knowing the work that you've done studying these uh, extremists. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really wanted to talk to you. First, I want to just get your reaction 
when you saw, heard about January 6th, did you catch it on TV? Were you, were you able to watch it, or did you have to just catch it secondhand in the replays? Well, so the, the insurrection on January 6th, um, I watched very attentively uh, off and on during the day just because I, I was teaching on Zoom, right? So I was kind of moving in and out. But, no, I, right, right. I watched that attentively, um, and I think I could make a fairly compelling argument that it hasn't ended no, just in I agree. Its own kind of Frankensteinian way has yeah. morphed into a kind of permanent um, insurrection of the QAnon infiltrated Republican Party, and is now effectively becoming the Republican Party, right? As we see its tentacles. Um, reach into, for example, Arizona, um, and the you know the fraud it the non recount recount for it, yeah, and and that that's going to leak in clearly into Georgia and Michigan, and I think very probably Pennsylvania. We have a a an open a Republican legislature here with open arms, right? Who would welcome any opportunity to extend the big lie? Um, yeah. And I I can think of. You know, I used to think that one of the greatest dangers to the republic was just Trump, was the the person of Trump. But right. now it's gone so far beyond. He may be the origin story, but but the big lie threatens the republic like nothing I think I have seen or am likely to see again in my life. Well, you know, my my two takeaways watching that was number one, thank God their leaders had had no spine whatsoever and there wasn't a real military leader inside there. Because I think if they'd had that, it would be much, much worse. The other thought that I had was this is tip of the iceberg. This is really just the visible portion of all this. But I think what was illuminating was even the jaded press pluses and minuses warts and all they noticed how infiltrated this was by military paramilitary mm-hmm. police officers and it's sorted uh, characters who who have some theoretical uh, law enforcement responsibilities yeah I, you know and I I feel like I've been kind of screaming into the darkness um, <laughs> about the the white supremacist and very violent strain that was clearly growing within the military or recently ex-military. So you have characters um, like the just absolutely vile troll, Jack the Sobiak, who was um, military intelligence um, and who, you know, who has training, who has expertise, right? And he is a kind of a model, a sample for what has become, I think, just profoundly cancerous in the military yeah. and an increasingly militarized police force across the country 
um, whose whose vision of what the country should be is just anti-democratic and oh, yeah. authoritarian um, in, in its core. I, I wrote a letter to the editor a while ago, and the, the upshot of it was, you know, these folks may not be the Nazis, but I know how we got to the Nazis. Uh, like yeah. I, I can, I, you, I can see how you get there, in in ways yeah. that maybe I understood historically, but now I understand them viscerally. Yeah, yeah. You know the the fact that there are actual elected officials who could, with a straight face, into a camera, say these were just tourists. Yeah. I saw that. That when when you get to that level of mendacity or audacity or just out and out lying, yeah, uh, I I don't know where you can pretend that there's a line. I, and you know the line is to to the public, but and the line is to themselves that we could that we could even have elected from any state anywhere. The depraved likes of a Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, yeah. a, a Lauren Boebert, a Matt Gates, um, yeah. right, a Louis Gohmert, right, a Ram Paul. The, you know, people who it's not just it's not just that they're ideologically invested in the big lie. It's that their worldview has no no anchor in fact of any kind in, in, in like in any domain of human of human inquiry they deny the pandemic they deny the efficacy of the vaccine they deny climate change They're, they support the overthrow of a democratically elected government like it's you know it leaves me sort of speechless um, when I hear, say, a Marjorie Taylor Greene compare a massive rule to the Holocaust, like it is, I run out of words to to, to, to describe how stomach churning that is, and that she uses that kind of like she uses her pseudo defense of Jewish people, even as she's uttering the anti-Semitic but still weaponizes Jewish folks in order to attack the so-called squad, in order to attack Muslims, um, is so beyond the pale of depravity that I struggle to find words even to express the horror I feel about that. You know, one of the uh, the things that I, I draw some modest solace from I heard recently that uh, it's a very tiny minority of these uh, arrested um, insurrectionists who've availed themselves of, of the traditional mode of American justice the plea bargain because they're convinced that Donald is only on a hiatus he's not really gone yeah. And he'll pardon them all. And I hope they run with that. I think that's a, a hell of a good strategy for them. I I hope they, you know. And, and huh. he won't. You know, he won't because he no. nothing. 
He cares nothing for them. They don't. They don't give him. They don't give him tons of cash. They don't really advance his um, grift in any substantive sort of way. Um, that they ever thought he gave a tinker's damn about them is just absurd. He did. Inattentive at best. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're tools, right? They're they're just they're just tools, and tools can be spent, and tools can be disposed of, right? When they when they no longer hammer the nail in anymore. Um. You know, I I uh, I, I heard that quote. You know, official order that they were going to stand down and they were going to purge uh, military right wingers, but uh, just uh, just was it last week? There was a group of uh, senior military staff officers who who stood up and backed uh, Trump. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah, uh, I, this, I, I, it's, there's a culture, there's clearly a kind of infiltration of the whole of the military culture that is going to have to see, you know, I mean, th- this is a cancer. You, it, it isn't that you can just purge it. You have to very carefully examine the culture that is growing up because if you don't get this out by the by the roots, it's just it's like it's just just going to keep coming back. Now, uh, we we see that there is a, a a real struggle. I I at least I hope there is uh, to get this uh, investigated uh, since. Uh, Lo, these many months have passed, uh, mm-hmm. almost five months before yeah. Congress has uh, managed to move. Uh, you know, and, and I understand you know, the FBI and the Justice Department and uh, the wheels of, of uh, what we might call state-level justice uh, has, has taken place. But I, I'm, I'm really appalled uh, that there has been such congressional inaction. Um, What's your what's your take on this? Are the Democrats incapable of, of looking the danger in the face? I don't know that I think Democrats are incapable. I think that Democrats struggle to keep their the wings of their own party together. Um, I think Joe Biden actually is exactly the right guy at this particular moment in history and i was not a huge joe biden fan and i still disagree with biden i'm i'm much more in the with the progressive wing of the party but his calm and his stabilizing influence i think has been has been good has been generally good thus far but i don't think there's going to be any january 6th commission i think it's going to be uh, I think it's I think it's DOA, um, and I don't I, I attribute this primarily to to both the the mercenary I want to be Speaker of the House motives of a Kevin McCarthy um, and the just utter cowardice as well as complicity in the insurrection of what is effectively the DQP. Um, that you know, at any commission that could call them to witness would expose, say, a Kevin McCarthy with respect to either what he did do or what he didn't do that makes him complicit in sedition. So 
and that is what it is. I, I think we have to call it what it is. What this was sedition. Um, do, do, I mean, I, I can't imagine having lived through what they lived through on the 6th of January, that they don't realize that without some kind of reckoning, it's going to be worse next time. How do they not say A and then B? I do not understand. Because they do not care when it conflicts with their own political fortunes. I think it's as simple as that. They're mercenary. They're short-sighted. They're still afraid of Trump. They're cowards, and if it conflicts with the a base that they think will vote them out of office, they're going to cower. They're actually more afraid of Trump than they were of the insurrectionists. Well, you know, I, <laughs> like you, I, I believe that Trump is, is more a symptom than the cause, mm-hmm. and, and while he's a temporary leader... I think there's worse ones in the wings. Uh, it just, it just is so appalling. Um, I can't understand why there's not some whistleblower there who would release some of that tape mm-hmm. of these yeah. insurrections being guided around the day, the day before. And you know, I think that, I mean, it's not that I'm holding my breath about that, but I think that like many things with respect to, for example, the Mueller investigation, right, where we're beginning to see, you know, stuff gradually come to light, um, and we're beginning to see releases. They're not necessarily um, leaks of whistleblowers, but I have some faith, actually, in the idea that the truth does eventually rise to the surface, I think it will. It's whether it takes so long, and we're already encumbered by so much else, right? Like getting out of the pandemic, um, like like dealing with the the crazies in the party, right? That are on our Twitter feeds today. You know, it's whether anyone will care. Um, Rachel Maddow, right? It keeps the heat on the the Russian the collusion with Russia in 2016. And she announces pretty regularly, right, when some some bit of new um, documentation is going to finally make its appearance to the public. But, you know, but I think she worries. You can sort of see it in the way that she talks about this, that people just won't care anymore. I mean, maybe they care so little, right, that, that you have um, a Ted Cruz you know, gladly using a Russian military video as a way of um, dissing the American military as inadequately masculine. Uh, you know, just, I, I don't even know how to start with that. And it's a Russian military training tape, you know, about a Russian army, a, a Russia that treats its uh, military horribly and cruelly. Um, this is what Cruz is celebrating, and it, and I think he may have gotten that little bit of video from some white nationalist website um, unwittingly, but still, you know, this does not excuse him in any way, shape, or form. So, you know, I mean, like, where, where we've got that on the table today, it seems pretty clear that we still, or at least the Republican Party, is still pretty comfortable with 
modeling our own politics after after Russia's, after Putin. That's, you know, that's not a good look. There's there's two other issues at least on on this matter that I really want to talk with you about because I think you're you're uniquely qualified with your insight into the right wing activists. Uh, you know, we have seen when it comes to uh, progressive activists, uh, anti-poverty crusaders, pro-environmental crusaders, uh, uh, democratic activists. We've seen preemptive arrests before the protests even happen. We've seen them rounded up because of the social media monitoring that we know is ubiquitous. Yeah. I have to wonder how many volumes and volumes of volumes of interacted, uh, intercepted chatter was ignored for that well, to occur. Yeah. No, I think that's a very legitimate wonder. And, and you know, the thing of it is, is that in not they're dark corners of the internet, but they're not inaccessible corners like Harlem, yeah. right? Like Gab, right? Like 4chan, like 8chan, like you know various and assorted other, you know, just ugly little sewers in the so-called intellectual dark web, right? Like the the increasingly Joe Rogan, right? The um, Dave Rubin, right? So, some of those places. It's not. It, it, it isn't as if we don't have tons, or did not have before the six, tons of evidence that this was going to happen, right? The, the, the very idea that somehow there were, you know, these super dark corners that were just inaccessible and they were super secret and hidden and, you know, they, they couldn't. No, the, 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 I just think that's not true, right? These chumps posted to, to Facebook. Anybody can. What? I said these chumps posted to Facebook. Yeah, all the time. And Twitter. Yeah. Yeah, no, that so, the I mean, was on the wall that this was going to happen, right? The only wonder of it, right, the only wonder is that it wasn't worse, that more people didn't die, right, that, there, that, that, that people didn't set fire right, his stuff inside the Capitol, and that they yeah. didn't hang the vice president. The only wonder of yeah. this is that it didn't really, that it wasn't worse than it was, right? And that's not to say it wasn't already bad enough. Five people, yeah. Yeah. six people die, right? And of the people who don't die, there are a number of others who are injured, including a guy who loses his eye, right? So, it, I mean, this, there's no downplaying this. Um, and that it could have even been more horrific than it was, right? That, that, that's, that's the only thing that's a wonder to me. Well, see, uh, the, I have to say that when we understand the depth of the monitoring, and the Snowden deep ubiquity yeah. of monitoring, yeah. that says to me that there's no way they couldn't have known and they yeah. didn't really have a problem with it. That's that's yeah. the that's the bottom line for me. Yeah, at, at least enough didn't have a problem with it, and enough who were in power who could have made decisions that were preventative didn't have a problem with it, right? That that this was, and this is why we need the commission, right? Right. This this yeah. is why we need a far more thoroughgoing, deeper probe with witnesses who are under oath, 
this is why we need a commission and this is why we don't have one. Well, you know, I mean, I hate to make this uh, holistic, but I think you have to say, you know, that these right-wing congressmen who think they can still bring weapons onto the Congress floor, they're they're ducking around the the metal detectors, Uh, the rules don't apply to them. You know, you have to say that that there there is no argument against BLM and and people who who have to see justice solely in a racial uh, lens, because these people are using their white supremacy, even where theoretically it's been purged. There's there's no way that an African American congressman could bring a gun on the floor. It's just it's, yeah. it's inconceivable. Yeah, it's inconceivable. Um, and, you know, we, we've seen these just, lunas, just ludicrous, right, these lunacy comparisons of the, the insurrection on the 6th with, say, Antifa, right, or BLM. And, of course, the point of doing that is, I think, primarily, at least in the first place, to just muddy all the waters, yeah. Um, you know, yeah. so that that we will just commit fallacy of false equivalency, right? And say, well, you know, we can't if we're not going to do one, we can't, you know, we can't, we can't do the other, you know. But the comparison is so odious, and at bottom, so fundamentally racist that every time I hear it, I am reminded of what you just said, right? That 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 any black, any African American um, congressperson, right, or or indigenous American Congress, brown person, <laughs> right, to, could, would not be able to get on to the House floor, um, right, to, uh, and sneak around that metal detector, right? I'm reminded of exactly where we are. Um, and it isn't because I think we've so much gone backwards, is that I think that we've not, we just never, we never really went forwards as much as we like to pretend that we had. Um, you know that the that Trump was a symptom. Trump emboldened the white supremacism and its violence in this country that was already there, right? And I mean, I think our first, maybe our first real recognition of this was Charlottesville, right? But it wasn't that it wasn't already there, and it wasn't that some of us hadn't been tracking it for years before that, right? It it, it, it just came out as it were of the of the woodwork and i would argue that we could easily go back to at least reagan right, in order yeah. to to find these um find these these roots these seeds right that that were emboldened even during the reagan pre- presidency um and then and then going forward Now, we we uh, so far at least uh, there's no clear sign that they're going to have a special prosecutor. Uh, who knows how far out uh, congressional hearings, if any? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I I don't understand. I, I it completely beggars my imagination as to why judiciary committees aren't up to their eyeballs in this. Do, do they? Are they so prepared for careerism's sake 
to not bring up the how how absolutely anti-democratic small d this this activity is. Are are they that timid? Are they that careerist? It, I, I don't understand how they could think of themselves as supporting the Constitution yeah. and not taking a stand against this violent attempt at an overthrow. You know, whether you take the assassination of, of uh, Penn seriously or not, uh, I would think that uh, uh, AOC and a few other uh, congresspersons were in a lot more danger than, than Mike Pence. Yeah, ultimately, I'm sure that's true. Right, although he was the one for whom they, they erected the gallows, and I think because because he refused um, to to not um, go ahead with that day's counting yeah. and, and confirming of the vote. Um, so that that made him the kind of, what, enemy for the day. I think it made him the enemy for the day. But, yes, of course, right? And, you know, I mean, this brings me back to Marjorie Taylor Greene, who routinely terraces um, um, AOC, right, among others, and refers to the squad, right, as terrorists. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, a, 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 it, it isn't just that they were in more danger on the 6th. It's that the 6th has not ended. We're, we're still That's right. Six. That's right. That's right. Well, you know, I won't ask you to break out your crystal ball and predict the next right-wing attack. Uh, but we, we know and we can see their fingerprints on so much of what's going on uh, that it is uh, it is really uh, the republic is still in danger. And well, I, think uh, it's I only danger hope now than, than ever, uh, you know, with the uh, 2022 midterms and then the I think the very real prospect that unless something I have no idea what that would be would change that you know I mean like that he would be in prison say um, that Trump will run again in 2024 and at least from where I sit right now in red state Pennsylvania that is both a terrifying prospect and a real one yeah um, <laughs> uh, to 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 wrap up this far from lighthearted little adventure. Um, we, we, we can clearly see that uh, the Republican Party has become the party of Trump. Uh, the people who are constantly decrying cancer culture cancel their, their truth teller. Uh, yeah. Hypocrisy knows no, knows no limit in the Republican Party. Um, you know, I just, it, it's almost impossible to imagine what they might do next. What what kinds of things are you on the lookout for now? Uh, I mean, we're already seeing 12 shootings over a weekend. Uh, gun control is, I guess, not even a topic in legislatures across the country. Uh, it, does, um, it, it comes and then it, it goes as quickly as it as it emerges. And every time, you know, we 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 raise our we raise our fists, right, and we. You know, and we say, oh, this is this is this is going to this is you know this is the one that that's going to make the difference, and then and then it and then it never does, and then you see the Lauren Boberts of the world use gun violence as a as a way to advertise for you know a, a, an AR-15 raffle. <laughs> 
I was speaking to an African-American young man uh, a couple days ago, and he said, Rick, I grew up in Chicago where people were getting shot all the time. I never carried a gun in Chicago. I live in Virginia now. I carry a gun. Mm-hmm. And that, I thought, was the worst indictment I've heard of of the slippage away from some kind of sensible future. It, it's 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 really appalling. I, I yeah, I don't <laughs> I don't see any forward movement on gun control legislation. Um, I don't see any forward movement on a commission. Um, I am currently horrified about the case coming up before the Supreme Court that could conceivably overturn Roe versus Wade. Um, I see some positive hope on the environmental front, but it it is very fragile. Um, and some hope on on you know things basic things like infrastructure. But, you know, but where you have a Mitch McConnell, for example, in the Senate, who has, who has no other goal than to become the, you know, majority speaker, again, of the Senate, and no other goal than to ensure that no legislation get out, you know, to, to make the Senate the same graveyard for Biden that, it, that the Senate was for Obama, right, where that's his sole life goal. You know, it's just, um, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. It's hard. I, I, I want to feel hopeful. I, I, I like Joe Biden. I want to be hopeful, and, and it and it is hard. Let me ask you one last question, and I, I thank you so much for your time. You're an educator, uh, and to me, what is most monumentally best about the kind of education you participate in is you teach philosophy. You ask people to think. You ask them to discuss, to debate. Even were there Zoom. discussions? <laughs> Even on Zoom. Were, were there discussions among your students over the 6th of January? I'm sure, I'm sure there were. Um, and I, the, the context in which I actually raised that in my contemporary moral problems class, um, I raised it around a reading that we were doing about the legitimacy of surveillance and, and the, the cre- creeping um, use of surveillance both online and in public spaces over the course of the last 20 years or so, including the Obama administration, to which I strongly... Sure, sure, sure. Um, sure. And, and so, it, given that context, that, that what we were talking about was, say, the question whether or not we should utilize yet more surveillance as a way of tracking down the, the you know, the plotters and planners of future insurrections, that they found a genuinely worthwhile and truly difficult question. And it is a really difficult question, right? Yeah. Because, right, were there more surveillance, especially in these online forums, 
right, then we can know yet more, right, and can perhaps prevent more future um, domestic terrorist attacks like we saw on January 6th. On the other hand, um, surveillance tends to cast a, an incredibly wide net, right, a net that I have myself been caught in a couple of times. Um, yeah. And, right, and I am no terrorist. I'm just, I'm a critic, but not a, but certainly not a terrorist. And there's a world of difference between those two things. Um, so, I mean, there are some really genuinely difficult questions there. And I think thinking about it in that context was um, genuinely useful for my students because mostly they just thought about it in terms of, you know, who are these people? What is a white supremacist? But the questions are actually harder and deeper and bigger than that. Absolutely. Professor, thank you so very much for your time. I, I can't thank you enough. I really always enjoy these discussions. And uh, I, I want to say let's, let's keep the flame of hope alive uh, yeah. despite the uh, contemporary uh, gusts. And, uh, <laughs> Guts the, the tornadoes, tsunamis, and hurricanes, I think you mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Thanks again, my friend. Wendy, you take care of yourself, please. Yep, you do too. You do the same. Okay, bye-bye. Wonderful talk. <laughs> yep, bye-bye. And now we have, coming up, Janine Maloff with the Justice Report. And we're here with Janine Maloff, who this week on the Justice Report will be talking about the procedural filibuster and how it's unconstitutional. So, uh, Janine, what do you got? Okay, well, just like we said, the procedural filibuster is what we're talking about this week. So the filibuster, as we know it, it's, it's unconstitutional. It has always been, and it has to end. And it morphed from the filibuster that popular culture knows, that infamous Jimmy Stewart, Mr. Smith goes to Washington moment, you know, where basically he's standing up there for hours on end, he's losing his voice, he just for this valiant cause. That's not what we're talking about, all right? The procedural filibuster is what the filibuster has turned into. And, that, and it's unconstitutional because it technically allows any one senator to derail legislation supported by a simple majority by basically uh, demanding a supermajority. So when we talk about this, we're talking about a slimy cheat. It's basically premeditated denial of equal representation by members of the Senate, period. Nothing else. So why is this Jim Crow relic? This abomination, the democratic rule, still exists. Even Thrive is a GOP, and yes, some rogue members of the Democratic Party work feverishly to defend the indefensible. Well, there's a short answer and a longer answer. The short answer is just the ugly, naked truth about the GOP, the GOP of Trump. And this is a GOP which basically defends unbridled power of the very rich. It also defends one other thing white supremacy. 
Now, the longer answer is within the thin veneer of a sense of false legitimacy that this procedural filibuster grants to a Republican Party that despises democracy itself and has made a mockery of it. This, is not, this isn't the GOP of Eisenhower or Abraham Lincoln. This is the GOP of Trump. It exists, as I said, to maintain white supremacy and traditional fascism, which is government by corporate fiat or government by corporate orders. Then you add one more obscenity, the procedural filibuster, which Mitch McConnell and others, including Roy Blunt, Josh Hawley, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Kirsten Sinema, and yes, Joe Manchin basically idolized, and it's completely unconstitutional. And there is a remedy that we're going to talk about at the end of this report that is almost never mentioned by these legal eagles, and it's almost never mentioned by the mainstream press, but I'm going to keep that at the very end, kind of hold on to it. So this procedural filibuster is totally unconstitutional, and this report basically intends to out, if you will, to borrow a phrase, that inconvenient truth. So first, the histrionics of fake Democrat Senator Joe Manchin, who just this past Thursday issued a really laughable, ridiculous statement from Newsweek in an article by Catherine Fung on the 27th, just a couple days ago. The headline is, Joe Manchin won't nix filibuster to get Capitol Riot Commission. He, quote, won't destroy our government. So basically what happened is that the January, January 6th commission bill was defeated by the procedural filibuster. And in spite of that, Joe Manchin is basically claiming that somehow nixing the, the filibuster is going to destroy our government. He was quoted as saying, quote, I'm not ready to destroy our government. No, I think a bill will come together. You have to have faith. So my question to Senator Manchin is exactly how will ending an unconstitutional device such as the procedural filibuster, as you put it, destroy our government? I'd really like to know what his rationale is, because that statement is not only devoid from reality and illogical, it's an embarrassment to him. So, you know, one of, basically what we have here is that the very bill that Manchin finally got on board with to establish a, 60, uh, a January 6th commission, investigative commission, was defeated using that same procedural filibuster that he wants to keep. Basically, the bill would have won. It had a majority vote of 54 senators, including, I think it was six Republicans. But there were 35 uh, Republican senators that voted against it. So without the filibuster, the January 6th commission bill would have passed. But because they used that procedural filibuster, it, minority dictators were able to just derail it. And that is essentially denial of equal representation in the U.S. Senate. And so, you know, Manchin basically, you know, he had the gall at, the, at this article when he was asked if he had anything to say to Republicans that were going to vote against the bill. He said, quote, the truth will set you free. My question to Senator Manchin is, really? And what is your truth, Senator? Why are you defending the undemocratic, unconstitutional procedural filibuster. And I've been calling Senator Manchin's uh, office constantly. I haven't received an answer yet, but this is not the end of my little diatribe on Senator Manchin. So, you know, once again, you have Manchin 
and um, Kirsten Cinema that are two what I call fake Democrats that are doing the dirty work for the GOP. They're like the the water carriers, if you will. And the question is, you know, is Senator Kirsten Cinema and Senator Joe Manchin are they really that naive or stupid, or that cynically corrupt? You know, no honest person would have any reason to believe that the GOP of Trump would play by the rules. That's why they need the procedural filibuster, so they can block the rules and steal from the majority, period. So I don't believe that Kirsten Sinema or Joe Manchin are stupid or naive. So you can fill in the blanks right there. So let's talk about the filibuster. So attorney Gregory L. Discant wrote an article that was published in the National Law Journal just this past March, March of 21. And the headline is, the filibuster is unconstitutional. That's, you know, pretty simple. And the, the subheadline is, the current debate ignores the most important argument of all. Um, the framers considered this in drafting the U.S. Constitution. Now, a word about the author, Gregory Descant, practices law at Patterson, Belknap, Webb, and Tyler in New York City. And he's also a member of the National Governing Board of Common Cause. So... You know, to quote Discant from the article, and I quote, just straight from it, yet again, we are debating the filibuster. The majority party, which does not have the supermajority, 60 votes, it needs to legislate, argues that the filibuster impedes majority rule and precludes effective legislation, while the minority party argues that the filibuster promotes bipartisanship and avoids hasty decision-making, end quote. So, Apparently, you know, we we know that the U.S. Senate (laughs) is kind of like the House of Lords, our version of it. Um, This is where effective legislation goes to die. Uh, And there's nothing hasty about the decision-making in the U.S. Senate. Keep in mind, the U.S. Senate already has unequal representation when you have, for instance, states like Montana or Wyoming that have maybe between 500,000 and 600,000 people entirely, they get the same two senators as a giant state like California with 36 million. That's unequal representation right there. But the filibuster, the procedural filibuster makes it that much worse. Keep in mind, a single senator can derail legislation to Senate packing by just threatening. They don't actually stand up there and talk. They just threaten. They're like, I will filibuster. They issue that notice. Boom. And now, in order to pass any sort of bill, you have to have a supermajority of 60 votes, which is almost impossible to get in the U.S. Senate. So these arguments about a procedural filibuster were considered when the founding fathers were drafting the Constitution according to the stamp. You have to remember, the Constitution came about because the Articles of Confederation were so weak. You know, every colony or every state was like a little country, and they couldn't get anything done. So founding fathers were really thinking about all these different things. And, excuse me, uh, the Constitution, according to Descant, quote, comes down squarely on one side of the issue. The Constitution is governed by the principle of majority rule, end quote, period. So my question is, can you hear me now, Mitchie McConnell and Syncophant Joe and Syncophant Kirsten? The filibuster appears nowhere in the U.S. Constitution. 
You can go through the document. There's not a single mention of it. And the, filib the filibuster violates that very principle that the entire Constitution is governed by, which is majority rule, period. But only the U.S. Senate, according to Discant, and not any court can correct this unjust situation. Now, I disagree with this statement. My attitude is if the filibuster is a mechanism that allows a minority, even a minority of one, to abrogate and subvert democratic rule, then it should be a case for the courts. To state that the filibuster is unconstitutional, yet simultaneously set it off limits to anyone, you know, by the self-appointed aristocrats in the Senate is not only disingenuous, it's a lie. All right, because the Senate's not going to correct this. So you have to also remember that the GOP and the defenders of the filibuster are claiming that it's constitutional because the part of, there's a part of the Constitution that says each chamber of the, of the Congress can create their own rules. But they took it too far. That doesn't mean they can create rules that violate or subvert the Constitution. But that's precisely what this does. And that's what they're basing it on. So you've got this, you know, trying to get rid of the procedural con the procedural filibuster, like the GOP wants you to fight, and like Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema wants you to fight. You like that that hamster on a wheel running furiously and going nowhere fast because the very thieves that are robbing us of our right of simple majority rule are the ones that are going the only ones that are allowed to change this? Nonsense. But Descant goes on, and he said he goes back to the reason the Constitution was created. Again, it was to overcome the problems of the Articles of Confederation. And the Confederation, every state had one vote, and legislation required the votes of two-thirds of the state. And so they had paralysis. My, doesn't that sound a whole lot like the procedural filibuster? And that's what the Articles of Confederation did. So the new Constitution, the one that we call our Constitution, basically eliminated that problem because they went with what was considered the parliamentary norm, majority rule. And that means simple majority. In other words, in a body of 100 senators, 51 votes, not 60. So, and this idea of simple majority rule is repeated in the structure and language of the Constitution. That's it. Now, and, and Discan talks about, and this is going to get to the end of the, uh, the talk as well. The most familiar example uh, concerns the vice president's role. Keep in mind, the vice president is also the president of the Senate. And the vice president, quote, has no vote unless the Senate is equally divided, end quote. There's no reason, according to Descant, for any vice president to be given this tie-breaking um, ability unless Legislation is created by simple majority. That means half the senators, 50 plus the vice president, should be enough to pass legislation. Again, negating the procedural filibuster. And the framers also, he quoted the framers saying, the quote, a majority of the Senate shall constitute a quorum to do business, end quote. That means 51 senators have to be present for the Senate to do business. That's it. And then it goes, just can't goes further and cites how Supreme Court precedent 
basically said that only a majority of the quorum, in other words, 26 senators, would be necessary to enact legislation. That's not 60. So, but Senate rules, and the very Senate rules that Mitch McConnell just keeps defending, and Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema keep defending, require, require 60 senators to, quote, be both present and favor cutting off debate, end quote. And when you talk about favor cutting off debate so they can get a vote, all right? Basically, if you don't have the 60 members to vote once a procedural filibuster is in place, then the debate doesn't get cut off and you can't vote on anything until the debate ends. So this is really a very childish cheat, childish cheat, but that's what it is. So the will of those majorities can be blocked, all right? Now, the framers, according to Scant, did set up, there are some exceptions to majority rule in the Constitution, like, for instance, to remove the president after impeachment or to expel a member of Congress. Yeah, that takes two-thirds. Um, and... The framers were very careful about debating whether a supermajority, which the procedural filibuster demands, was needed for a piece of ordinary legislation. They said no. They rejected it. Okay, what part of that does Joe Manchin and Christian Cinema not comprehend? It's not that they don't comprehend, they don't want to. And if it sounds like I'm being harder on them than I am the Republicans, it's because maybe I am. We expect this from the GOP of Trump. But when we have pretend Democrats like Joe Manchin, who, as far as I'm concerned, is really Republican, and pretend progressives like Kirsten Sinema, who she likes social justice issues, but when it comes to fiscal issues, no, she just basically flips the bird to everybody and thinks it's cute. So he goes into this more. Um, he quoted one of the founding fathers, Roger Sherman of Connecticut, who argued against the filibuster, quote, to require more than a majority to decide a question was always embarrassing, end quote. Um, so the supermajority proposal was rejected by the founding fathers. And, excuse me, the Constitution doesn't contain any exception to the idea of majority rule for any specific category of legislation. It just doesn't. Um, and then he goes on, he cites some of the Federalists, believe it or not. In the Federalist number 54, Madison explained that, quote, under the proposed Constitution, the federal acts will take effect merely on the majority of votes in the federal legislature. That means simple majority, not super majority. Okay. Um, so the idea, Madison went on to say that, quote, the fundamental principle of free government would be reversed. In other words, if you had to have a supermajority, it would no longer, it would be no longer the majority that would rule. The power would be transferred to the minority, end quote. And that's very true. And that's exactly what's happening. When a bill for the January 6th commission to investigate the violence that happened, the insurrection, was defeated by 35 senators because they use a procedural filibuster. Don't tell me this is a this isn't illegitimate because, of course, it is. So 
If the filibuster, according to Scan, if it's unconstitutional, why can't the courts protect us? This is what he asked. <coughs> Excuse me. And he explains how he submitted a brief to the SCOTUS, to the Supreme Court, in 2014 with Common Cause. And he was supporting a lawsuit which challenged the constitutionality of the procedural filibuster. And basically, what happened was that the plaintiff, the common cause, could only sue the sergeant at arms and its other officers, but not any senators. And this is the reason why. I'm quoting directly from the article now. Quote, because senators are immune from suit under the Privileges and Immunities Clause. And the SCOTUS, the Supreme Court, in other words, had previously ruled that the proper way to challenge a congressional rule was to sue such congressional officers, end quote. So what happened with this lawsuit was the U.S. Court of Appeals in the D.C. Circuit threw it out. And Descant explains how it was kind of a catch-22. That's because on the one hand, the court said that the case really needs to be dismissed because Common Cause didn't fail, didn't sue the senators, the very senators that created and supported the filibuster. But the court also said Common Cause couldn't sue those senators because of the, the um, privileges and immunities clause that says that they are, quote, immune from any sort of civil lawsuit. So then it goes, gets kicked up to the Supreme Court. They refused to review it. Okay, so it was this judicial, what Descant caused, calls this judicially, quote, this judicially created gotcha, end quote. So the Supreme Court said, we're not even gonna look at it. So there you are, you're stuck. Now, it, he went on to end saying that the only way to change this is the Senate itself. All right, they're the only ones who can change it. I disagree, but that's my point. That's my opinion. Excuse me. So now we have another article from the Washington Post, and this was written in February of 2021 by Jack Rakov. And Jack Rakov is the William Robertson co-professor of history and American studies and a professor of political science emeritus at Stanford University. He has a book out titled Original Meanings, Politics and Ideas in the Making of the Constitution, and um, it received the 1997 Pulitzer Prize in history. So Rakov, the, the headline is, quote, the filibuster may not even be constitutional the way it's used now. And, and quote, and he's talked about how basically it morphed from this rule of deliberation, he's called it, to a rule of decision-making. So it's just the way it's used. So he's asking the question, is the filibuster constitu- truly constitutional? And, you know, basically, here's the problem, all right? The legitimacy of the filibuster is on this one piece in the Constitution, so-called legitimacy, Article 1, Section 5, Clause 2. And that is the one in the Constitution that says, quote, each house may determine the rules of its proceedings, end quote. Well, that's so vague, uh, Apparently, Mitch McConnell and his buddies ran with the idea that, hmm, we can pretty much make any rule we want. So if it's unconstitutional, too bad, so sad, because how are they going to stop us? Now, Article 1, Section 5, Clause 2, to me, doesn't, to me, doesn't mean that each house of the Congress 
can create rules that subvert democratic rule, that subvert or abrogate equal representation. But that is precisely what the procedural, federal, uh, procedural filibuster does. And so, you know, this is basically this particular piece has allowed the U.S. Senate to use this mechanism to nullify equal representation in democratic rule. So, you know, we've talked about this before, the Senate cloture rule, um, and, you know, these people in government, they love using their own jargon, okay? It makes them feel like some of them think that they're smarter than they actually are. So basically the idea is that the Senate can decide, quote, when, whether, or how deliberation on a measure should end, end quote. In other words, when will debate end? Now, why is that important? As I said before, debate or deliberation has to end on a topic before any sort of vote on the measure or on the bill can take place. So if you never, it, it basically, if you never end the debate, and they don't actually have to be debating. Let me make this clear. A procedural filibuster says they make the threat, which says, you know what? Unless you have 60 votes, this artificial debate that really isn't taking place will never end. And if it never ends, you can't vote on it. And so when we looked at the January 6th commission bill and the reason it failed with only 35 no votes is because they issued the procedural filibuster knowing full well that the Democrats did not have the necessary 60 votes, the supermajority to overrule it. They might have had, because there were six Republicans who voted with the Democrats, they might have if they could have gotten renegades like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema and some of the others on board to end the filibuster. But without ending the filibuster, you're stuck. So that's what this is really about. And so in 1975, and this was according to Politico as well, the, the rule for cloture of debate, in other words, the rule to end debate at two-thirds, which was a long-time norm, or three-fifths of the Senate, shifted in 75. And senators, it, it basically what they did is this. Theoretically, senators could raise what they call the cloture margin. In other words, the number they need to end debate and actually have a vote, even if it's fake debate, they could set the numbers as high as they wish. Okay. And that is something that is really scary because it would be impossible to pass anything. And so uh, this author here, Racco, it's kind of funny, actually, to quote him, he said, quote, why not adopt an American version of the famous, famous Polish liberum veto, which allowed a single aristocratic member to terminate its legislative deliberations? Okay, end quote. So basically, there are... There are some things we can do, all right? Um, the same clause in the Constitution that empowers each House of Congress um, basically for what's called, it also, Congress can punish, quote, punish its members for disorderly behavior and with the concurrence of two-thirds expel a member, end quote. Um, there are times that you really can use this Oh, this basically this idea that you need two-thirds majority. One of it is to punish members. Uh, another is to convict executive officials upon impeachment, veto overrides, treaty ratification, and constitutional amendments. 
those are the times when the framers allowed supermajority rules to be enacted. Okay, so let me, you know, let me rephrase that. Um, so this is what we're dealing with, and it's gotten out of hand. It's ridiculous. Um, and this was used by Jim Crow states to make sure it was very difficult and not impossible to have any effective civil rights legislation. That's why when President Obama referred to it as a relic of Jim Crow, he was telling the truth. When Representative Congresswoman Cori Bush called it the same thing, that's what the procedural filibuster was used for, to make sure that these Jim Crow states could continue to not only discriminate against communities of color, but to also induce violence against them and get away with it. All right, that's what it was about. And that's how they used it. So any sort of civil, meaningful civil rights legis legislation would, you'd assume, would have to have a supermajority. That's why the Civil Rights Act um, was so difficult to pass. So, you know, again, the white's commitment to race, uh, the white South commitment to racial segregation and white supremacy um, was one of the major reasons that the filibuster was defended. Um, but the more common defense, the modern defense now, besides being Jim, Jim Crow, is the idea that now you have to have 60 senators. So basically, um, there are some people like Mitch McConnell for the Republicans and Joe Manchin for the Democrats that give this nonsense, this ludicrous reasoning, saying that, well, somehow this procedural filibuster demands that we have to basically, we, it promotes bipartisanship. Well, it doesn't, okay? And even if it did promote bipartisanship, let's take that argument and say that it's actually, that we'll, we'll go with that. Is promoting bipartisanship so important that you have to do that while at the same time sacrificing equal representation? I say no. Equal, rep equal representation is the democratic norm and to hell with bipartisanship. And furthermore, how in the world can you work with a GOP that has demonized anyone who isn't either pro super rich and anyone who isn't a white supremacist? You can't. It's indefensible. So McConnell, you know, he gives you this nonsense. Um, McConnell looked at Federalist number 62 and he linked his filibuster to Madison's ideal of deliberation, which supposedly gives the Senate uh, the role of providing, quote, a complicated check against improper acts of legislation, end quote. Well, basically, that is a jargon-laden way of saying, we're going to protect <clears throat> the wealthy and the white supremacists from the rabble, because they must be too stupid to rule to actually enjoy democratic rule. That's what McConnell is really saying between the lines, in my opinion. And there is no defense for it. He knows that. Bipartisanship is not so important that it requires that we basically nullify equal representation. Nonsense. So, you know, once again, this is not Mr. Smith's goes to Washington type filibuster. It just isn't. Um, so we can go on here. 
but it, it gets a little complex. I'm going to go to another article now. This is from the New Republic, and it's written by Adam Winkler, and this goes back to 2013. The, the fight against the procedure of filibuster has been going on for a while, actually. And, um, you know, basically, Winkler points out Rand Paul's 13-hour filibuster when he wanted to protest um, the Obama administration's drone policy. But, again, he's in 2013 outing it because usually – the filibuster, whoever does the filibuster, they just give a simple notice that they intend to filibuster. And then the other side has to round up 60 votes for cloture. In other words, to close debate, to end the threat so they can actually vote. If you don't have the 60 votes, you can't vote. The, 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 the debate that isn't a debate continues even though there's no debate going on. And I know this sounds like a lot of double talk, but that's the nonsense that passes for legitimacy in D.C. So, once again, Winkler says the same thing. The filibuster is not mentioned in the Constitution at all. Um, and, you know, he goes on. There's been, he talks about how there's been legal scholars, many that have argued that the filibuster is unconstitutional. Um, the framers didn't intend to permit what are called dilatory tactics. In other words, tactics that, that nullify or interfere with simple majority rule. Mad, James Madison, who's considered the primary author of the Constitution, <coughs> was quoted, <coughs> excuse me, in Federalist Number 58 with the idea that requiring a supermajority, more than a simple majority, in order to pass basic legislation, that, that would violate, quote, the fundamental principle of free government, end quote. And Madison goes on to say, quote, it would no longer be the majority that would rule. The power would be transferred to the minority, end quote. And then this Winkler guy, he also quotes how um, Thomas Jefferson had a manual of parliamentary procedure that was adopted by the first Congress. And in that manual of parliamentary procedure, uh, excuse me, Jefferson was quoted as, quote, no one is to speak impertinently or beside the question superfluously or tediously, end quote. But, you know, the Madison quote says it right there. And see, a lot of people, a lot of Americans really don't know much about their own history, truth be told. And James Madison has been considered historically the main author of the Constitution. So when he says, look, requiring a supermajority to pass basic legislation would violate, quote, the fundamental principle of free government, end quote, and that it would no longer, quote, it would no longer be the majority that would rule, the power would be transferred to the minority, end quote. That says it right there. Mitch McConnell cannot argue this. He can wave it away, but that old fool doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm just going to say it. So uh, the Supreme, Winkler also talks about as the, the landmark case the landmark Supreme Court case of Marbury v. Madison, which established, the court established its own power, um, you know, where basically the Constitution does enumerate, does list, in other words, exceptions to a rule, and that those exceptions are the only ones legally available, meaning that those five things that I listed, like impeachment, 
uh, constitutional amendment, that kind of stuff. Those are the only ones that are legally permissible to require a supermajority. That's it, not basic legislation. And that was the first Supreme Court. So, you know, again, the text, you know, says, quote, a majority of each house shall constitute a quorum to do business, end quote. It's pretty simple. But again, McConnell and his toadies got, think they got a way around it by saying, well, we can make up our own rules. But you're not allowed, you don't have such latitude that you can make up rules that nullify equal representation. That doesn't work. So, you know, this is what we're dealing with, and it's ridiculous. Uh, there's another article in The Atlantic from David Rapass titled, um, and this is from 2011, Why the Silent Filibuster is Unconstitutional. So I call it the procedural filibuster. He calls it the silent filibuster. But once again, this gives you a little history about it. So basically Rapass is saying the first 13 decades, of of the U.S. Senate. The Senate permitted unlimited debate, okay? So yeah, a single senator or just a few could keep something from passing by just talking nonstop. And that is the filibuster that Hollywood made famous in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, okay? The idea was as long as you could stay there, the minute you stopped, then they could close debate and vote. And it wasn't used very often. Um, but then in 1917, the Senate adopted a cloture rule. And this basically said debate could be ended by a two-thirds vote. And this was the beginning of the procedural of the silent filibuster. Then the two-thirds was changed later on to three-fifths. And now he says in recent years, he's talking in 2011, cloture's been really just all over the place. Um, now it can just a minority. It could be a minority of one. The silent filibuster, and he calls it out as an oxymoron if there ever was one. Uh, because again, filibuster is supposed to be that you're talking nonstop, but this is just issue the threat. And even though there's no debate really going on, theoretically, the debate never ends unless you can get 60 votes to end debate and have a vote. And that's how they stop everything. And this is nonsense. All right. It just is. So and the reason Mitch McConnell keeps citing Article one, Section five, which says, quote, a majority of each house. I'm sorry, I take that back. Basically, Mitch McConnell depends on the idea that each chamber of the U.S. Congress can determine their own rules. OK, um, this writer also talks about how uh, basically simple majorities should be the rule. And he also mentions Article One, Section 5, which says, quote, that, quote, a majority of each house shall constitute a quorum to do business. That means you have a simple majority, you can do business, you can have vote, you don't need a supermajority or 60 votes to pass legislation. In fact, he goes on to say that during the Constitutional Convention, again, the Founding Fathers considered the idea of a supermajority requirement, but they rejected the idea soundly, okay? Federalist paper number 58 was quoted, quote, in all cases where justice or the general good might require new laws to be passed or active measures to be pursued, the fundamental principle of free government would be reversed if quorums of more than a majority were required. It would be no longer the majority that would rule. The power would be transferred to the minority, end quote. It says it all there. Uh, you know, little Mitchie in D.C. needs to hear this because 
he knows he's lying. So then this changed over time, all right? Uh, the, 11, the 111th Congress, which was in 2009, beginning of the Obama administration, changed things. And they said, if a bill didn't, didn't meet the approval of a minority block, it was threatened with filibuster. And this writer is basically saying that, quote, this threat was so powerful that it was tantamount to a veto. And that's what it is. The procedural filibuster or the silent filibuster is essentially a veto of the minority that stops everything dead in its tracks. And it has no legitimacy. So what is it you're going to do? And, and I want to just basically mention David Rapath is the one that wrote this article. He is a retired professor of political science and his specialty is American government. Now there was another article, and this was in AFT, American Federation of Teachers, their journal, my union, and it was written by Stephen Levinsky and David Zablatt, and it's titled The Crisis of American Democracy because the filibuster is a crisis. We can't get anything done with it. The authors, Levinsky is uh, David Rockefeller Professor of Latin American Studies and Professor of Government at a little institution called Harvard University. He's uh, authored multiple books. His research interests include political parties, authoritarianism and democratization, and weak and informal institutions. David Zablatt is the Eaton Professor of the Science of Government at, again, a little unknown place called Harvard University and was the 2019-2020 Carl W. Deutsch Visiting Professor at the Wissenschafts, oh God, I cannot pronounce this, in Berlin. He specializes in the study of Europe and the history of democracy, and Levinsky and Zablat together co-authored a book called How Democracies Die in 2018. And they start talking like teachers do. The idea that most of us grew up taking democracy for granted, all right? that the Constitution was this magical document and nothing evil would happen. But that's not what's really true. And that the public's uh, impression of it has changed. Uh, they mentioned a 2019 survey by Public Agenda, and it said that 39% of Americans believe that democracy is in crisis, while another 42% believe it faces, quote, serious challenges. Only 15% said American democracy was doing well. And there were, they also cited what are considered well-regarded global democracy indexes. And they cited Freedom House, another one called Varieties of Democracy, and another one called the Economist Intelligence Unit. And all three show what they call an erosion of democracy in the United States since 2016, Trump administration. Freedom House ranks the United States as less democratic than Chile, Chile, the Czech Republic, Slovenia, Taiwan, and Uruguay. And they also put the United States, in terms of democracy, in the same category as newer democracies like Croatia, Greece, Mongolia, and Panama. This is a disgrace. So now they ask the question, how did we get here? And they do admit the problem started before 2016. As much fun as it is to blame everything on Donald Trump, that's just not totally true. Trump did plenty of damage, but you know, he never worked that hard anyway. 
and electing someone like him that is basically a demagogue made matters worse. But it wasn't the only thing. You know, they're saying that, quote, strong institutions can constrain corrupt or autocratic-minded leaders, end quote. And then they talk about how that's what the Constitution was engineered to stop that type of activity. Um, and they go on to say, quote, America's constitutional system has effectively checked many powerful and ambitious presidents, including demagogues, Andrew Jackson, and criminals, Richard Nixon, end quote. And they say this is the reason why Americans have such faith in the Constitution. But they also explain that constitutions by themselves aren't sufficient to protect democratic rule or democracy itself. They have to be reinforced by some what they call strong unwritten democratic norms. And there are two basic unwritten democratic norms that are absolutely essential to maintaining democracy. And they list them as one is mutual toleration and the other one is institutional forbearance. So mutual toleration is exactly what it sounds like. We may disagree, but even though I, for instance, I may hate the ignorance and the um, vile statements that come out of Marjorie Taylor Greene's mouth, including about Jewish space lasers, which as a Jew I take offense at, I'm still going to defend her right to say stupid things. All right, because that's the First Amendment. That doesn't mean I'm going to, that doesn't mean I'm just going to let it go. I'm going to rebut what she says, and I'm going to argue it because I have an equal right to do that. But that's mutual toleration. The institutional forbearance is the second thing. And what forbearance means is, quote, refraining from exercising one's legal right. So, end quote. So it's it's self-restraint. It's when somebody who has a lot of power doesn't use it very much. And it's really essential to democracy. Now, this part here makes me very nervous because, to me, institutional forbearance sounds a whole lot like we're relying on the governmental charity, if you will. I would rather see uh, government, when it comes to using power, more defined and more restrained, frankly. But this is what these two writers are saying, all right? Um, you know, and they go on to explain what a U.S. president constitutionally can do. They can pardon people. Um, they can, uh, with a congressional majority, pack the U.S. Supreme Court by pushing a law that expands the court size, so on and so forth. Um, Congress can shut down the government if they refuse to fund it, and so on and so forth. Um, forbearance is really relying on people that are angels. I'm more cynical in that. I really am. I would like to see that the members of the presidency and members of Congress follow the same laws as the rest of us. Seriously. So there's where I disagree. But this is a very good academic article. Uh, they go on to say that those two democratic norms were attacked most recently. The early attacks began in the 90s with a familiar face, Newt Gingrich. Uh, and they mentioned how Gingrich encouraged Republicans to really slander Democrats by using words like betray, anti-flag, and traitor. And Gingrich was, some people can say inciting, but they said, quote, Gingrich encouraged Republicans to overtly abandon mutual toleration, end quote. And 
you know, it worked. Um, and these writers also mention other people besides Gingrich, Sarah Palin, Rudy Giuliani, Mike Huckabee, and Donald Trump. Uh, and basically, you know, this is where they're slandering people with and getting away with it. Now, again, the mainstream media let them get away with it, and that is on them. So, you know, there are there's times when polarization can be healthy, I suppose, but this is what they're really talking about. It's, it's worthwhile, worth a good read. Um, I would definitely give it a read. They talk about how you should lose the election, but not the democracy if you have to lose elections, that is. In other words, you have to know how to lose. In other words, Donald Trump should have just accepted the election after, the, after everything was counted instead of spread the big lie which resulted in the insurrection of January 6th. And I would maintain that the insurrection is not over with yet. So this is what they're talking about here. Um, and, you know, the authors say, where is American democracy headed? And this all deals, again, with, with the filibuster intact. We can't stop this. That's the problem. And so... Under the Trump administration, they said they saw three potential threats. One, quote, continued Democratic backsliding. Two, descent into dysfunction. And three, minority rule. And the continued Democratic backsliding, you know, again, Trump has so weaponized the tool of slander that it really has undermined our government and it's you know, it's very similar to what Hitler proposed with big lie. It's almost identical, frankly. Um, and this democratic backsliding, according to these authors, has been, quote, facilitated by the Republican Party, which has repeatedly abdicated in the face of President, President Trump's violations of our constitutional order, end quote. And it's true. Okay, they're willing to sell their souls and end democracy to back up this spoiled, this spoiled millionaire. Uh, and in my opinion, Trump is a grifter, his whole family, in fact. So, and they go on to point that this type of backsliding, you know, the United States could, could backslide into, you know, autocratic problems here. The descent into dysfunction, again, yes, we have a system of checks and balances, and it does bring divided government. But divided government can still work if you have mutual toleration and forbearance. But the polarization, the demonization of the opponent is so bad that it's descended into institutional warfare, as they call it, and so you can't get anything done. And I would maintain the demonization came from the Republicans, the GOP. The Democrats have barely fought back. And as for the far left, they're just defending. This comes straight from the GOP. There's no guesswork here. Okay. And then we have minority rule. And minority rule is what the filibuster is all about. Because the GOP has nothing to offer the people except hate. Hate and austerity for all of us. Um, and, you know, they look at what this final threat to democracy is in terms of minority rule. They point out how the last two Republican presidents, namely George W. Bush and Donald Trump, they came to office, they became president, even though they lost the popular vote, all right? And that points to the, um, the dysfunction of the electoral college. And 
Then they point out how also the Democrats won the overall vote in 2016 and 2018 Senate elections, but Republicans under Mitch McConnell still control the Senate. They also point out how in 2017, the appointment of Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court cited how basically he was the first Supreme Court justice in all of our history to be appointed by a president who lost the popular vote and then confirmed by senators who, quote, represented less than half the country. And then Brett Kavanaugh also came to the court the same way, okay, that this conservative Supreme Court basically was built with what they call, quote, decidedly minoritarian origins. In other words, conservative court is ruled by the minority. Gorsuch and Kavanaugh shouldn't even be there because it wasn't legitimate, but we're stuck with them now, okay? So they also point out in February 2020, 52 senators voted to acquit Trump, and they came from states that represented 18 million fewer Americans than the 48 senators who voted to convict. So basically he was acquitted by senators that represented a very small minority of the American public. This is a problem. And again, the procedural filibuster is what allows a lot of this to happen. I'm not going to go through this entire paper. It would take too long. You might want to give it a look-see. And now, what can we do about this? This is the little teaser I talked about at the beginning of the show. In an article in the Los Angeles Times that was published March 22nd of 2021, it's an op-ed written by Erwin Chermerinsky and Bert Newborn. Now, Chermerinsky and Newborn, they, let me explain who they are. Erwin Chermerinsky is Dean of the University of the UC Cal, I'm sorry, of the, let me start again. Erwin Chermerinsky is Dean of the UC Berkeley Law School, and he's a contributing writer. Bert Newborn is the Norman Dorson Professor of Civil Liberties at New York University School of Law. So these are two noted legal scholars. And so what's the headline? Hold on to your seats. Quote, the filibuster is unconstitutional. Here's how Vice President Harris can take it on. There is a solution. And they point to it. I'm just going to read straight from this. Quote, there is a clear next step in changing the Senate filibuster. Get ready, folks. Vice President Kamala Harris, as president officer of the Senate, can and should declare the current Senate filibuster rule unconstitutional. Boom! I told you it was going to be a big one. And if she did that, the door would be open for discussions on a new rule that would respect minority rights without giving a, quote, an unconstitutional veto, because that's what the procedure of filibuster represents, an unconstitutional veto. Now, have the mainstream media talked about this at all? No. I'm surprised it was in the LA Times. Uh, You know, has any of the commentators of MSNBC, did Rachel Maddow talk about it with her legal background? No. But you're hearing it here at PNN. This goes back to an unusual source. It turns out Richard Nixon did actually one good thing in his life. And believe me, I hated Nixon, okay? When, when I was in high school, 
you know, in your book and you say, what's your big ambition in life? Because Nixon was president then. I said I wanted to be the top of the Nixon enemies list. So this is hard to say, but it's the truth. So it turns out that when Richard Nixon was vice president in 1957, he was a, because he was vice president, he was a presiding officer of the Senate, he issued two advisory p- opinions, which are published in the WilsonCenter.org. And these two advisory opinions, quote, held that, quote, a crucial provision of the Senate's filibuster rule requiring two-thirds vote to amend it was unconstitutional, end quote. So Vice President Richard Nixon's determination to basically push this idea was then reaffirmed by vice presidents after him, notably Hubert Humphrey for the Democrats and Nelson Rockefeller for the Republicans. So there's a history to this. In fact, it was that ruling, okay, that allowed the Democratic-controlled Senate in 2013 and the Republican-controlled Senate in 2017 by a simple majority vote to, let's see, let me, let me backtrack. I'm going to quote from the article. Quote, in fact, it was this ruling that allowed both the Democratic-controlled Senate in 2013 and the Republican-controlled Senate in 2017 by a simple majority vote to eliminate filibusters for all executive and judicial nominees. So they don't do that anymore on executive or judicial nominees, but they still do it on basic legislation. So Vice President Harris, according to Chermarisky and Newborn, they say Vice President Kamala Harris has the same power to basically decide that the current version of the Senate filibuster, which demands a 60-vote supermajority to pass any legislation in the Senate is unconstitutional because, I'm going to quote this, quote, because it denies states equal suffrage in the Senate, end quote, in violation of Article 5 of the Constitution. Okay, I'm going to say that again. It turns out Vice President Harris has the same power to rule that the procedural filibuster, the silent filibuster that we know right now, that demands you have to have a 60-vote supermajority rule to pass any legislation where the filibuster is used is unconstitutional, quote, because it denies states equal suffrage in the state in violation of Article 5 of the Constitution, end quote. And this is the issue. And they go, Chermarisky and Newborn go on to explain how the Senate is already essentially um, an institution that denies equal representation. And he cites, they both these authors cite how low population states, as I mentioned before, have privilege over larger populated states. And they mentioned how Wyoming has approximately 580,000 people living there. And they get the same two senators as California with, they say, 40 million residents. And because of this, they estimate that a person, quote, a person in Wyoming has 65 times more voting power, representative-wise, in other words, in the Senate, than a person living in California, end quote. And that the current 60-vote filibuster rule makes the imbalance even worse. So, under, and I'm just quoting this directly, quote, under the 60-vote rule, 41 senators representing about a third of the population can outweigh 50 senators representing two-thirds. Okay? This and, and again, this situation surely violates the principle of equal representation in voting. For example, the one-person, one one-person, one-vote rule 
that the SCOTUS, the Supreme Court, long ago applied to state legislative and congressional districts, end quote. So, everyone agrees the text of the Constitution doesn't allow for giving California more senators than Wyoming. So we can't do that. And the Senate's un- basically unequal representation um, that's something that the internal setting vote, Senate voting rules will have to deal with. But they're asking, does that mean the Senate has the authority to create even more unfairness than already exists, in other words, with the procedural filibuster? And they talk about how Article One of the U.S. Constitution does not permit a 60-vote supermajority rule. In fact, the article has supermajority rules in the Senate only for the following, quote, in narrowly defined cases like ratifying treaties or, quote, overturning presidential vetoes or, quote, convicting impeached officials, end quote. And the thing, the Senate needs to operate and must operate by majority rule. That means simple majority. They go on to say Article 1 says nothing about a supermajority requirement for basic legislation. Okay. And this they go on to say, basically, this is the supermajority requirement um, is illegitimate, all right? And they go on to say that the best way, first of all, I'm just going to read straight from this because it's a little complicated. Quote, but a supermajority, a 60-vote supermajority rule destroys the mathematical equality of each senator's vote. And so they talk about how the 17th Amendment revolutionized the Senate. Because a lot of Americans don't realize, the younger ones especially, the 17th Amendment basically transferred the election of senators from state state legislatures to the voters. So the voters, with 17th Amendment, voters had the right finally uh, to directly elect U.S. senators. They didn't before that. And, but at the same time, the 17th Amendment preserved the founders' decision to give each state two senators with equal voting rights. But they go on to say that the 60-vote supermajority rule destroys, quote, the mathematical equality of each senator's vote. So what they're saying is this, that Vice President Kamala Harris could actually decide that the, the version of the Senate filibuster that demands an unconstitutional 60-vote supermajority requirement to pass any legislation is, one, in violation of Article 5, it's in violation of the 17th Amendment, and the constitutional presumption of majority rule. And while this full Senate could try and overrule the vice president by majority vote, um, then senators wouldn't be, wouldn't be debating the filibuster as a political policy, but now they would be debating it as a constitutional question, which would put the filibuster in more jeopardy because it's clearly unconstitutional. Um, and this is what we're dealing with here. And the fact is that Vice President Harris could stop this right now. She has the power. She is the president of the president of the Senate. And she can and she must declare the Senate, the, the, ver- the current Senate filibuster rule is unconstitutional. That no, a minority doesn't have a right to give to have an unconstitutional veto. And ironically, this power came from advisory opinions dating all the way back to 
to then Vice President Richard Nixon. The irony is just too delicious. So once again, you've never heard this anywhere else. The Vice President could end the filibuster right now. All this nonsense, all this unnecessary hand-wringing, trying to coochie-coo Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema along when all they're doing is increasing their power base. That's all they're doing. Unnecessary. Vice President Kamala Harris could basically declare and change the Senate rules by declaring the Senate filibuster unconstitutional. And this came from two top law professors, Ed Irwin Chemerinsky, UC Berkeley School of Law Dean, and Burt Newborn, Norman Dorson, Professor of Civil Liberties at NYU School of Law. This is not just a little opinion. It is a big one. And you have to ask yourself, why wasn't this mentioned on mainstream media? Because the fact is both political parties get money. You can call it contributions. I call it graft from the same corporate sources that don't want certain things to happen. So my own thoughts on this rulemaking process in Congress and the potential and very real danger this this um, power of the of the uh, filibuster veto poses to all Americans. I have some questions. Number one, while the Constitution grants the privilege or power to each House of Congress the right to determine their own rules, this power is stated in a very vague manner which only invites abuse, and that's what the procedural filibuster has become, an abuse. Does this power also mean that Congress has the right to pursue and implement their own rules, no matter how archaic or unjust, at the expense of democratic rule, equal representation, and the Bill of Rights? Translation, does this power to determine their own rules grant Congress the right to effectively nullify any rights granted to any person or uh, for equal representation as either a byproduct or an actual goal of that rule's implementation. And now another question on subject that's plaguing the people at every level of representative republic government. Do elected reps in a republic have the right to pass any type of law they please, even if said law violates the Bill of Rights? You would think the answer would be simple, but it's not. At the local, state, and federal level, elected reps, that means Congress people, representatives, senators, mayors, governors, city councils, etc., have been inflicting alleged laws that to varying degrees trample the Bill of Rights. Where is the accountability? And again, I'm going to just end this with the fact that according to Chermerinsky, Professor Chermerinsky and Professor Newborn, the vice president has the power to end this filibuster and declare it unconstitutional, to declare it an unconstitutional veto. And she is the power right now. So the final question is, why haven't they done it? Why hasn't it been discussed? And why hasn't the mainstream media talked about this? Seriously. Well, in my opinion, we know the reason why. In this two-party hoax, nobody really wants any of the progressive goals to actually translate into effective legislation. So it's easy for the Republicans to be the bad guys using the filibuster unconstitutional veto and for the Democrats to hand ring collectively and whine and complain, oh gosh, we really want to do it, but we can't. And corporate gets their way. That's what this is about. 
This is about a hoax of a democracy, and that way they can effectively block a living wage. They can effectively block Medicare for all. They can effectively block police reform. They can effectively block civil, effective and good civil rights legislation because the Republicans play the bad guy. They play bad cop to the Democrats, good cop, whining that they can't do anything when, in fact, they could. It's a big lie. Vice President Kamala Harris can end this filibuster right now, and I'm demanding that she does. She wants to be historic, then go beyond just mere cosmetic nonsense and do your job and declare the procedural filibuster as an unconstitutional veto. And then we can push for a truly progressive agenda, which the majority of the American people not only are demanding, but deserve. We deserve not a new deal, but a fair deal. Let's end this now. And that's my report. Well, folks, and that righteous indignation is exactly what you get when you learn things such as this. This is absolutely gobsmacking that this particular feature of the the rules in the Senate was set out by none other than Richard Nixon. This is just absurd. This is a, it's it, they're they're doing theater up there in Washington, and it's time they get called out for it. Uh, whether you're on the left or you're, or the right, it doesn't matter. We don't have we don't have a government that is working for us. We have a government that is consuming us, and that's got to stop. Um, but that's it for us tonight. Uh, really appreciate you, Janine. What a great uh, uh, piece. And listen, peace out. We will see you guys next week. <laughs>